The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. The weekly podcast where we try to break out of our bubbles, but realize it's a struggle when you're talking about race. Yes, that rhymed. I didn't intend it. But there it is. So we're talking about race. We're talking about class. We're talking about politics, identity, and so much more. Those are many words. Why don't we just call this show about race? I'm Baratunde Thurston, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are my co-discussants for this week. Some of my best friends are black author Tanner Colby. Hello, sir. Hello, Mr. Thurston. Sarah Jones, social media editor at The New Republic. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you and nice work on the B-side. Looking forward to you fully flexing your (laughs) intellect through words in in this episode. And from sunny Phoenix, Arizona, back for her second appearance, I believe, LaToya Peterson, deputy editor for digital innovation at ESPN. Good to have you back with us, LaToya. Thank you. And it's actually ESPN's The Undefeated. I'm at the subsite about race because where else would I be? Nice. So appropriate. You found like a box that holds you. I know. Is it good? It's ridiculous. <laughs> is, you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Never in my okay. life would I have been okay. like, yeah, ESPN, this is where I'm going to work. But you know, it's actually <laughs> working out. <laughs> and and we are wishing Anna Holmes, another regular co-discussant and host with a healthy recovery. She's a bit under the weather Aww. and also on vacation. Said that on the B-side, but if you were one of those people who skips the B-side, like a terrible person, you missed that. So Anna, we're sending you love. All right. Today, we're talking about the bubbles that we all live in to one extent or another, whether it's a tech-mediated bubble driven by Facebook and Twitter friendless, or whether it's a video internet news uh, news source bubble, or whether it's the bubble of our physical communities or anywhere else. How can those bubbles skew the way we see race and class? Is it possible, even desirable, to break out of them? Tanner, why don't you set us up? Because you sent like several articles with multiple thousands of words. Yeah, really long articles. <laughs> Tanner sent a book to us, y'all. Articles sk- that were too long for Baritone Day. I skimmed I was it told like a good this student. morning. <laughs> yes, well, skimming, skimming is what we do. That's how we stay in our bubbles. We only skim <laughs> outside the bubble. Touche, sir. So I want to talk first about like sort of the technological side of this because all three of you deal in the social media world. I think from looking at the maps of the election, we're all pretty clear on exactly how you know, separated and segregated we are by geography in this country uh, between the urban and rural divides, between blue states and red states. But as far as the technological bubbles that we're living in, we get one narrative saying that, oh, everyone's living in their ideological echo chamber. Red states are only reading fake news and Fox. Liberals are only living in their little like, you know, tea and scones world. And of course, Facebook and, and Twitter are saying, no, that's not happening at all. We're not responsible for anything. So, and I'm the technological moron. I know nothing about any of this. So each of you maybe just tell me, like, how real do you think the bubble phenomenon is in terms of the online world? And where do you think there might be exceptions to that? Or what do you think about the narrative that's evolving around the bubble? Uh, yeah. So I actually just wrote about this uh, this week. Um, yeah. Saved oh, good. by competence. <laughs> <laughs> so I am the social media editor. So yes. I spend- So it's your fault. Yes, everything. It's all my fault. I spend an unhealthy amount of time every day on social media, which just happened to be useful this week. But I do think that it's fair to say that we do exist on, in certain bubbles, especially on Facebook. I would say less so on Twitter. It's, it's not quite as easy to separate yourself from the rest of Twitter when you're on that platform. But on Facebook, it's a real problem. And the fake news is part of it, definitely. But I also think overall, like, 
Facebook's algorithms are set up in a way that, you know, say they say are going to prioritize what your friends are sharing on their Facebook pages, like over a publisher. So if you're a publisher and you're actually like publishing legitimate news on Facebook, like I do every day, it's actually pretty hard often to get your legitimate news stories to break through into people's news feeds. So anyone with a with a crackpot website can set up a page, advertise it. If they're pulling in money from ads, they've got the money to throw at advertising. And, you know, we don't have one recipe for viral content, but if there is one, it's hyperbole. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so people will share this crazy stuff and it's very easy to get that to spread like wildfire. And that's exactly what happened. And I do think it's telling, first of all, that Facebook... I genuinely believe that they didn't realize this was going to be a problem on the scale that it is. Same for Twitter, which is very, very telling. And now they're extremely reluctant to do anything about it. It's not really in their business interests to do anything about Mm. it. And I think now you're seeing the consequences of that. And I'm not, I don't have a great deal of confidence. I know Mark Zuckerberg has announced like a kind of a rough site-wide plan to address the issue. I don't know how confident I feel that that's going to work and, you know, the site's going to institute like any long-term changes. Latoya, you want to tap in on this? Sure. I mean, you know, for me, what's interesting about this whole conversation about bubbles is I think a bigger shift in how we think about things. And for framework, I should just mention that I am and always will be a frustrated librarian. Uh, I spend way too much time thinking about libraries. Frustrated librarians are responsible for so many of our freedoms. So. (laughs) Librarians are dope, but you, you also have to go they are to school radicals. to be one. So it's <laughs> right. not in the cards. But um, but if you look at libraries, right, libraries are built on a system of discovery. The information is organized, but there's always this like interesting feeling of serendipity where you might just pop in somewhere or you're on a shelf. You go to, to section 305.6. Not like that was my favorite section or anything. So you go to section 305.6 and you look at what's on all of the other things. That's the sociology section, in case you didn't know. Uh, you look Dewey at everything. Decimal system. Yeah. Uh, like that, son. Like that. Um, <laughs> and you go and you look at all the different books about sociology and that you came for the book that you wanted. But there's all these other books next to it. And why don't I just read one of those? And why don't I just read one of those? And you end up expanding your world in that way. It's totally possible for you to walk into the library, only go to your destination, pull something off the shelf, and then leave, right? But this whole idea of browsing is intrinsic to the experience, right? Whereas on the web, we've come closer and closer to this idea of being served an experience. If things come to you, your friends recommend this thing that you read so you don't leave the platform anymore to go and seek out your own information devices. Platform owners want to kind of control how much time you spend on their platform and therefore they roll out their own versions of news and they say, well, here, this is easier. I'll serve this to you and I'll serve you news from our partners. You don't need to read the Wall Street Journal, read our partner from Fox News. You don't need to do this. You can just do that. Um, And I say a lot of this is kind of that weird you know, it feels very like techno malicious when you think about it on a broad scale, but it's literally like these series of small, lazy decisions <laughs> that have led to mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. kind of this larger and huger problem. But at the same time, the filter bubble also exists because we don't try to challenge it actively in our own lives, particularly because, you know, we're on information overload. A lot of times there's a lot of things coming at you that you have to surface and, you know, you have limited time. So it's like, what am I going to invest time reading in? For example, myself. I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I love it. But I always skip the opinion section because I think it's a trash fire and I hate those people. So I'm like, nope, I'm just going to keep reading the reporting. That was great. And I'm never going to read opinion. And one day, just randomly, I guess I was feeling kind of like uh, masochistic or something. And I was like, yeah, I'll read the opinion section. No problem. And see this. And it was interesting because I did learn something. 
when I read the opinion section, I opened it up and there was somebody on, you know, top above the fold. And they're ta- he was talking about Obama. And he was talking about particularly how infuriating and aggravating it was to have Obama continue to wearily explain things to people. One more time for all of us dummies in the audience. And that was the first time I'd ever incur- and like read or encountered somebody that has that mindset that the president is condescending to them. Like, you mm-hmm. know, to me, I never felt like Obama was that way. He was, you know, kind of this patient explainer in chief, right? <laughs> and yet to somebody else who, you know, and whatever's influencing their perception of that, be it racism or be it past life experiences or what have you, that was a horrible, horrible thing to be subjected to for four years to feel like someone was always talking down to you. And what was interesting was he followed that sentence up by saying, you know, but say what you will about Obama, at least he's sincere. Hillary does the same thing, and she's not sincere. For me, reading that piece, I was like, okay, so this is starting to get to what I haven't seen answered in all of the 8 million think pieces I've read about this election, which is this idea, what is this underlying feeling that people have? I could call it just misogyny. I could call it just this or that. But really understanding this idea of how we interact with each other and how it looks like people think Trump is a straight talker. All of his actions say that is not true. But It's this whole idea of what is someone perceiving from these Mm -hmm. messages and what are the underlying feelings that I think we didn't spend enough time talking about. And those are the things that kind of feed these bubbles. I think it's interesting that, you know, Latoya talks about how all of these programs that serve us Mm -hmm. things were a series of small accidents. But the reason there is a series of small accidents is because all those things were coded by people who yeah. live in a bubble who didn't understand the series of accidents they were making. Well, and they, they had no incentive to understand. Right. There's some phrasing I stumbled into when I was writing this Vox piece that I mentioned a few weeks ago and that we used to talk about the two Americas. And John Edwards repopularized it. There was a book in the mid-90s called Two Nations or Two Americas. And, uh, and the red versus blue imagery plays into this idea of a simple us versus them. And I, I think we'd be so lucky to just have two. And that the, the prevailing bubble outline, this online that's defined us, are advertising segments, marketing segments, ad servers, to pick up on the server word from Latoya, and that we have hyper-optimized the extraction of money, in, in largely in the form of attention, that self-serves some warped version of you back to you. I mean, look, the music industry did it with hip hop where they're like, hey, this is what blackness is. Let's pervert it a bunch and then sell it back to you. Like that's what an internet ad driven business model has done with so much of our media where you already don't like Hillary. You probably believe she killed this FBI agent and is running a child prostitution ring out of a pizza joint in DC. Like Mm -hmm. if you just were in reasonable in real life, physical company with people, you couldn't get away with that. Right. Somebody would call you on it. But the internet, some of these platforms let us all live alone. So we're in a segment of one, we're adjacent to each other, but not interacting. And it allows our little, our selfish biases, like confirmation bias and only wanting to have our opinions pandered to, to be like, yeah, I like that. Literally, in a, in a technical sense, I like it. And so Facebook serves even more of that to us, which makes us like it even more. So it's, there's, there's a weakness in all of us to do this, whatever our political designs are, but that weakness is amplified by technology, which amplifies all kinds of attributes, good and bad ones. And so I think the, the financial incentive that these platforms have to exploit our weaknesses mm-hmm. is, is real. And, and the, the hyper-segmentation 
which is sold as a good. Right. If you're making ad tech, oh, we can, we, we actually have 520 distinct groups and we can have different ways for them to hate Hillary or love Hillary. That's a business, but it's taking the health of the democracy and the idea right. of reasonable shared sets of information out of the picture because there's no business model for that yet. Right. There's no, yeah. Mm-hmm. What you've just said has just put me in this like dystopian, you know, William Gibson necromancer future <laughs> of technology. And, you know, part of the reason I wrote my book some of my best friends are black, available on Amazon. Um, but but people which will serve you more yeah. of what you want. <laughs> no, no, no. But it actually doesn't because the the you know the whole premise of that book, as you know, but people who are new to the podcast might not know. In two thousand eight, me and all my friends were like these gung ho Obama voters, and we all lived in this white liberal bubble in New York. And I realized that we were getting together every Tuesday night during the primary, like oh Obama, and it was always all white people. Mm-hmm. And I started asking people like, how many black people do you know? And it was like Neo in the Matrix waking up and be like, had, not even waking up, but having that hint that like, maybe this isn't the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe there's a Morpheus out there to give me, is it the red pill? I forget which pill it takes. It's the, the red pill. Yeah, it's the red <laughs> pill to, to go out and see more of the world. And so that book was very much about me saying, All right, I'm going to leave the bubble. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that I had an editor to give me two years salary to go to leave subsidize your to extra s- bubble exploration. <laughs> right, because it, it takes that long to get out of the the, yeah. the self that you've been served by your media, by the culture around you and go sit and see the rest of America. And I've made a deliberate attempt. I still kind of do live in a bubble mm-hmm. because it's unavoidable, but you know, my job is leaving the bubble. I write books about people far outside. Of, I just wrote a book about an astronaut. I went to space last year. You left so the earth bubble. I left the earth bubble. I have a whole feminist Twitter feed. You know, I've just, I've very deliberately made myself do that. And so th- <laughs> I just was thinking about Morgan Freeman in the movie seven. He's a collector. <laughs> Sorry. Weird so, reference. So that was sort of my bubble. I grew up in Texas, Louisiana, Alabama. Very young Republican growing up. Lots of Rush Limbaugh on the car on the way home. And then sort of the knee-jerk response to that. Like, I sort of was like ejected from that bubble once I started thinking for myself and ended up in the white liberal New York bubble. And and here I am now. But so hey, everybody go around and talk about your bubble and maybe how you got out of it or what you try to do to get out of it or what you your experience with with your bubble. Right. So I grew up in Southwest Virginia, right on kind of the edge of coal country. And my parents were Christian fundamentalists who homeschooled me for most of the way through. So like describing what I grew up in as a bubble probably doesn't even do it justice. Like Mm. it was almost completely off the grid. We didn't have a TV for a while, so I wasn't getting any news at all. It was like a metal sphere. Yes. With a lock. Deliberately. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of James Dobson. Mm. That's a that's about it. Focus on the family guy, right? Oh my yeah. god. Colorado yeah. Springs. Yep. Yeah. That yeah. is that's the one. So that's what I grew up in and I went to a very conservative Christian college. And that was my bubble for the longest time. And it was sort of like that neo moment the older I got where I realized this isn't <laughs> This, this isn't, isn't all there is. Yeah, no, yeah. maybe evolution is real. And <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And then in 2008, it was a really formative moment for me, too, because I had, you know, started to move away from Republican politics. And I was an, I was an Obama supporter at this very conservative Christian college where there was a cluster of us, a very tiny cluster of us who were Obama supporters. And most of members of that cluster were not white. Mm. So I got to see the racism not directed at me, but directed at people who were my friends yeah. in a really like in a way that I couldn't ignore for the first time. 
and now I'm at the New Republic. So it's <laughs> it's been quite a it's been quite transition a complete. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So it's been quite an experience, and I still feel like I've got a little bit of a foot in both worlds. Does either world feel more real to you, or do they just feel different? You know, they both feel very real in a way, and I think I, I've kind of hit this point in my life where I'm never going to be completely free of the one that I grew up in, and mm-hmm. that's maybe just as well because it's very useful. I'm still hearing things from people that I don't hear from, like, my new very, like, left-wing bubble, and, like, it's good to actually be plugged into that and know, like, actually people believe this, and that's very good to know. And so I wasn't as surprised at Trump, I think, as maybe some other people were. Um, but then again, like my my left wing bubble often doesn't quite feel real to me either. Mm. So. Latoya, you know, Tunde, didn't we grow up in the it's same place? We just had different experiences. Hmm. Let's talk more about that. You want to talk more about that? It feels like a therapy session. How about you go first? Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> yeah. I so I I grew up in a in a blackness bubble, in Washington D.C. late seventies. The urban environment, 16th and Newton Street, to be precise. I grew up in a kind of like two bubbles. One was the bubble of a, a explicitly pan-African activist mother who named me Baratunde despite any genetic known <laughs> substantiation or reason to do so. That was a, that was my name as a political act. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm an extension of my mother's activism in, ter- in the form of my birth certificate. And then you've got you know. Urban America in the 80s, like that formed me. It was an all black and a bit of Latino neighborhood. There was like one white family, very poor white family, lived a few doors down. They had a lot of animals in the yard, like in the middle of the city. They had, if it had like a rural flavor to it, they had like rabbits and all kinds of other wildlife. And the neighborhood was poor. There was a Section 8 housing complex right across the street. We didn't live in that. My mother, you know, had a good job that got better. She happened to be a computer programmer late in her life and use that to help pull us out of the, the poverty ranks, though I also remember going through a bankruptcy and she, social security checks due to my father's death helped support us. That was like my initial universe. It was, it was a very black and brown universe. It was one where everybody around me was probably poor, but we didn't know it. We also didn't have Instagram to remind us of what everybody <laughs> else had in our face. You know, TV was good enough to remind us of what we didn't have. And then the shift to private school started, added another bubble to my life of a wider liberal in, in proclamation, uh, sometimes hyper conservative in the personal combat that, that school can be. Clinton supporting folks all in a Sidwell Friends School is a, a Quaker private school. So I went there for six years and that bubble prepared me for an Ivy League bubble <laughs> in New England. And, and so I, uh, I think there are so many ways for me to think about and describe the universes that I have or continue to inhabit, there is still a universe of blackness. There's also a universe of like elite blackness. There's an urbanness. There's the people who are free to travel around the world at will that I'm a part of, which is a really small community that you can just go somewhere when you want. Like that's not normal. There's a tech bubble that I'm very connected to. And then there's a, a curiosity that I've tried to maintain uh, and a, a deep saturation for years in conspiracy right wing radio an email list. Like I was an Alex Jones listener for years as a curiosity. And as a like, I should probably know what other folks are thinking. I actually became a member of focus on the family oh, God. just to get the mailings. <laughs> like I didn't believe, but I was like, I should, I should know what these other people are thinking. They're, they're also in the country that I'm, I'm living in. 
So yeah, the bump- mailing lists would be a good way. Like, just we should give people a roster of like sign up for these mailing <laughs> lists just to get news from all the other bubbles. It, it, uh, it, it's helpful. It's, yeah. uh, it's very helpful. So that's that's some of my my bubbleicious journey. Uh, where where do we diverge, Latoya? Bubblelicious. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So again, Washington D.C. So I grew up between Silver Spring, Maryland, and Southeast in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. Silver Spring was like this diverse little. It's still one of the most diverse cities in America. I think. I think we're still on the list, like in the top ten. But it's one of my most diverse cities in America, both uh, racially and economically. And there's also this very specific type of blackness. I realize comes from Washington D.C. Like your black identity. Mm. You see so many different types of black people that you never feel like you have to be limited. <laughs> <laughs> like you see rich black people, you see poor black people, you see middle class yeah. black people, you see professional class black people. Like there isn't that idea that blackness can only be one thing. And when you start journeying around the mm-hmm. rest of the U.S., you're like, God damn, like what is going on with the rest of the world? What happened to your blackness? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was like, are y'all all right? Do y'all look still oppressed? Did you know emancipation happened? Are y'all okay? Like it's this whole, you know, if you, you go to certain parts of the South, you're just like, damn. But in D.C., you don't necessarily feel those types of construction uh, constraints, right? Uh, and so I think where we diverge is that, Bartunde, you got into, like, the private school to Ivy League and essentially, like, that finishing school, beautiful, like, veneer, right. whereas I did not. And so <laughs> I was, like, bouncing around from different public schools and, you know, dubious quality. Some of them were really great. Some of them really weren't. Um, and then I didn't go to college. And so it's yeah. very difficult to escape. Like, there's a societal path of, like, how you change classes, Right. And it's a very specific kind of path. Like this is how you get out of poverty. You work really hard. You go to school. You get a good job. You don't have to think about these things anymore. And that's kind of the Mm -hmm. way they tell you how to do it. And then if you screw that up, there is no other roadmap for that. And so I was on that pipeline of like, okay, let's where you can like go to college and be something for yourself and like get a really good job. And I didn't do that. And so I spent like four or five years just trying to figure out like what the hell am I supposed to do? And like hanging out with all my other friends who didn't go to college and ended up at 13th grade at Montgomery College and like <laughs> trying to figure out mm-hmm. what to do with your life. And, you know, I'm the same person I was, you know, more or less um, in terms of intellectual capacity than as I am now. It's just, you know, there wasn't really an outlet for it and nobody was really telling you you had to go do stuff. And my mom was like, you should get a trade like learn how to do nails like that was kind of <laughs> the world i was in yeah and so i yeah. had kind of like this is gonna make you super laugh Artoon day and one day we will get drinks and i'll tell you the whole story but i had like this whole campaign where i had wanted to be an intellectual i decided i didn't want to like be in this little like suburbs bubble anymore i want to work at the mall like i wanted to be an intellectual mm. so i was like trying to figure out like what intellectuals did where do you go for an art gallery that has wine and like what is a foreign movie? So, <laughs> like, it was so, so here's to tap in just on that point. I think, <laughs> yeah, I do find that hilarious that it was like an explicit goal of yours. It I also, was. when you transition between worlds, and I think we have all done some version of that, or else we wouldn't be at this virtual table together on this show. There's who you were born into, the zip code, the ideology, the spirituality. That's always there. And so for me, like... I got the the all access pass or like at least an upgraded wristband to <laughs> yeah, levels of American VIP. society. Right. <laughs> it actually it actually isn't all access it turns out. Uh because the seeds of doubt have been planted deep within my psyche which make me question sometimes like does this pass work? And then the system reminds you explicitly your pass doesn't work here. <laughs> right. I don't care what the degree you have like because of where you were born or or your skin like it's it's not valid. There's a reason that you can't quite walk in this space but i remember sushi being like this big deal because <laughs> it, it seemed like everybody around me knew sushi and i was like ew like wh- how did that become a delicious thing you didn't cook the fish 
that's a problem where I come from. Like, how is a problem success, right? Like, how you fail to cook, and that's a sign of success. That didn't compute. And so the, I still encounter in my life these moments where, like, I never learned about art. Yeah. But the people, like, the worlds I entered, that was a default. You got some art history. And so I, as proud and confident as I walk through the world in general, like, there are these... The original bubble <laughs> holds back some comfort in the new bubbles. And sometimes that's an advantage because you are connected to multiple worlds. And other times it's it's kind of uh, withholds you. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you can't it's really go into a new bubble if you have your, like, tells, right? So, like, for me, one of my tells that my <laughs> husband likes to crack jokes about is that I read way more than I talk. So I frequently mispronounce mm. complex words. Frequently, I do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry, I got excited. I was like, "Oh, it's not just me." Yeah, it's all, all the time. <laughs> like you say something confidently, and my husband would be like, "Did you mean that?" And I was like, "Look, ain't nobody. Everybody ain't go to the math. Everybody ain't go to prep school. Can you get on my face?" But like <laughs> that's, and I have to be very careful when I'm in like mixed environments or people who don't know me because I have to make sure that I'm presenting the person that I think I'm supposed to be. But to go back to the whole bubbles thing, it's interesting. So I think the only bubble that was firm. Right. Because, you know, I was always kind of pushing at these boundaries between worlds and trying to figure out what they could be. The only one that was firm was kind of a liberal one. Right. And mm -hmm. um, the, that there was more of a progressive atmosphere toward how people thought. And that was not a complete liberal one. Right. There was still a lot of like anti LGBTQ sentiments and stuff like that and where I grew up. But the overall environment, particularly around like the D.C. area, is more toward progressive and less toward conservative. And so like one of my like key foundational people in my life was his boss, this guy named John, who was a conservative. And he was like convinced I would be the next Condoleezza Rice. He was like really trying to get me to go back to school and like mm. come lead the conservative party. And I was like, I'm not actually conservative though. And he was like, that does not matter. And I was like, oh, like, this is a whole other like, Messiah. I was like, right. a whole other like thought process here that I don't understand. But because of John, I've had like this lifelong affinity toward somebody who's a Republican is not a deal breaker for me. Somebody who's a conservative is not a deal breaker for me. I read Cato. I read all these places. It's interesting because I tend to be very intensely curious about other people and therefore I like going places that I have never been before or that people are completely different from me and that makes me very happy and that's not to say that I'm like biased it makes me totally weird <laughs> that's, but like yeah, how do you think I got to behavior. ESPN I was like I never did that before <laughs> try right. out well, what this feels like I don't know anything about sports we're all, like, we're yeah. all exceptions yeah right exactly. and here's a question right we are we are all sort of exceptions that we've all sort of come from more provincial bubbles to this, let's call it the more global, urban, multiracial, mm -hmm. progressive bubble, which is a bubble in and of itself, right? So if we have this debate right now, and I feel like maybe there's an equivalence, a bubble equivalence mm -hmm. that's happening in this debate where the urban bubble is, is and the red rural bubble are co-equal competitors in this narrative that's emerged. And... My feeling of the the liberal urban progressive bubble, it's definitely a bubble. It has problems. It can be smug and self-righteous. It's not nearly as progressive on race and gender as it thinks it is. It's progressive when it comes to what you do with vegetables. Yes, mm -hmm. it definitely right, is. We're going to deep fry some broccoli yes. and sprinkle kale fondue on it. Well, that was That's my next point. very progressive. But thank, yeah. <laughs> so, but like in that bubble, climate change is real. Obama was born in this country and he's not a Muslim. Fake news does circulate, but it eventually gets debunked and you're like, oh yeah, that, that Bernie thing was debunked or whatever. So that bubble is, is it's like liberals in, in these urban enclaves, like the ones we live in, we have definitely carved out a slice of reality mm -hmm. and that is what we want it to be. And we are being served per your, you know, the internet is serving us ourselves in a way that we want. 
but it is a slice of reality. Mm -hmm. Whereas in another bubble, climate change isn't happening. Evolution isn't real. Obama is a Muslim. It is the, you have the fake news problem much more pronounced. So is there an equivalence of bubbles, false equivalence of bubbles? Is the blue bubble maybe a little bit better in the ways it thinks it is? Where do we come down on that? I feel like you know there there definitely is a blue bubble. I don't I don't think there's much doubt about that and I do think it can often be very arrogant and patronizing and like you said it's very frequently not as progressive as it wants itself and everyone else to think it is. And yeah, I think it's it's not wrong either to say that red America is a bubble too and especially when you come from my kind of background when you're talking about religious fundamentalism and like very kind of deliberately separatist and we have our own media and we have our own like our own politicians and like replacements for your own science and your own science and your own history yeah. and and everything. Um and that's very deliberate and it absolutely is a bubble. But when you're thinking about red America more broadly, I think you know I see poverty as playing playing a role there. Like it's it's very difficult, I think, to just like pick up, move to a blue bubble. That's why most people don't make that happen where I'm from. Like they just it's very difficult. And I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. Like it maybe it's it's easier for the for people from the blue bubble to go out and like see the rest of the country than it is often from like rural America to go out and see the rest of the country. I also think too, like it's a, it's a big failure of political education. Um, I feel like if the democratic party had more of a political infrastructure in these places, if unions hadn't declined, you know, hadn't been broken the way they've been broken in these areas, I do think that there would be more of a counter narrative and like, it would be less homogenous politically than it is right now. And I think that's a factor to keep in mind too. One, I want to point out Sarah, that you said our, and your interchangeably, which I mm-hmm. thought was interesting when you were talking about red state and thinking. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a tra- she, she is a trans bubbleist. She's a trans bubbleist. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> trans bubbleist. But, no, I like it's that. True, some affinity, some distance. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think that it's it's difficult, it, not in terms of like understanding facts, because that's a whole other, I feel like, category of conversation where you're like, what are the facts? But I also think it's interesting when we're trying to understand the other, whoever that other may be, just being willing to talk to people, I feel like is something that we're starting to lose as a society, this idea that other people can be rational and might have their own motivations for something. And that if you talk to them a little bit longer than you normally would, instead of taking like their first statement at face value, they might flip over and understand something a little bit better or have a more complex view on it. Um, for some people, it's just rankings, right? Like climate change is a thing. It is real. Like at this point, scientists are just like, look, we are all united. This is not a this is not a drill. Like this is real. Um, but for other people, like they're like, yeah, I heard about that climate change science, whatever. I'm not convinced. But I'm not convinced really also means I don't really know what to do about it. And I also think that a coal job would be better for me right now. So I don't want to really think mm-hmm. that much farther about this issue. I kind of want to just leave it the way it is. It's the same thing. Like I saw a meme about like the elections and it was like people's legacies or something like that. And Obama's legacy was put women in the men's room during this like meme. It was a conservative meme clearly. And I was like, oh, you're talking about trans rights. And one of those things that's really interesting to me is like that is a gap that I think most people would accept on face value because they have no other experience with it. To them, it's such a 
such an alien thing, such a foreign thing mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. to ever know somebody who had gone through this experience or have a friend that's gone through this experience that it's totally scary and it's immediately rejected. Whereas, like, you know, when I started getting into game development, hanging out with game developers, there's a lot of people who identify as transgender. And one of the things you start noticing is there's a lot of transgender bathrooms and or all genders bathrooms or non-labeled bathrooms. You go in and you just go pee and you you know, move on. You don't really think about it too much more than that. Um, but it, it, that level of experience really helped to contextualize things where as something that seems very frightening and, you know, unpacking that even further, right? A lot of the fear about men in women's bathrooms is this under this automatic understanding that men are rapists or that men are predatory and that you can't trust a man in a woman's bathroom because something bad will happen, right? There's this weird ominous, you know, ominous thing about it that has to be unpacked to understand where that fear is coming from and then also, like, how to debunk it. But there's also this idea, too, of people being like, well, I like things the way they are and I don't want to feel like I have to change. I don't want to accept this. Um, I think a friend of mine was talking about one of her friends just being like, or her friend's mother, and she was saying, you mm -hmm. know, her mother being like, the changes are happening too fast, guys. They're too fast. Like, I love you, but it's too fast. And this idea of maybe instead of trying to force our agendas all the time, learning to actually come back and speak to each other. But that's a very hard thing. And it's easy to want to rank and be like, you know, our way of viewing the world is better. Our way of viewing the world is more precise. Like if I was going to argue it from the other side, they could be like, you know, we had yeah. so much more understanding of what it meant to be American. And we had so much more pride back here, back then, before we had all this other stuff in the world. And it's really about not wanting to connect and see other people as humans and see other people as citizens that bothers me. I think that's the thing that feeds the filter bubble. It's this idea that we don't have to actually talk to each other anymore. Thank you both. I don't want to take up too much time adding or just echoing. I would try to add this point that the in terms of access to facts, to go to, back to your original quote, like, are the bubbles equivalent? The emotional reality of both is equivalent. I think the objective reality of both is quite different. And I think people who are in the climate denier community, in the community of women who voted against Hillary because they just don't believe the women who were assaulted by Donald Trump. Right. Like that's a real emotional reality. It, it plugs into like low self-worth and like just being bombarded with attacks on your esteem for generations, but an, an inability to or an unwillingness to reckon with the actual truth of that. I think there's some tantrums going on in redder bubbles right now. Like I just don't want to. Mm -hmm. And the world will respond to you because it was more designed for you, even in the impoverished and, and sort of defranchised moment where the global financial world doesn't care about you. The political world still bends to your will on the snap of a finger. You know, black people are stopping traffic trying to get basic human rights. Mm -hmm. You flex once and you get a demagogue in the most powerful position in the world. Like that's not balanced. <laughs> you know, right. The bubbles are not equivalent there in terms of the responsiveness to and like how much labor it takes in a blue bubble to move something. Uh, there's there's a lot of other kind of nuancey thoughts and and the culture and the the sense of speed and that that the blue bubble is more a part of because there is a technological acceptance. There is an embrace of the speed of culture changing. There is quite frankly a dominance of cultural meme making mm -hmm. out of the coasts that defines what most people watch all over the world and listen to all over the world coming out of San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York, that's not normal. And I can, I can so identify with the frustration of feeling left out of media narratives because I'm black. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's like a part of our default setting is like we not being seen, not being accurately portrayed. <laughs> so, so what gives me some hope for like trans bubble communication is that the emotions are, the same mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you go beneath the level of raw information and claims into the level of emotion of feeling lost or overlooked or disrespected or condescended to all the negative ones and the positive ones of security and love for family and joy at a surprising moment. Like basically we're all human. And so there is some potential to cross them. But I think we have destroyed so many of the mechanisms that would allow that to happen. We've destroyed a media mechanism that would allow it to happen, a political mechanism, whether it's gerrymandered districts or the hyper-partisanship or the funding methods for our parties. You talked about the political infrastructure and lack thereof, the lack of union infrastructure. That was an express effort. Unions didn't just Mm -hmm. fade away. That was a Republican, well-executed act Mm -hmm. of war Mm -hmm. on a prop of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Then it's crumbling and they're defunding the party. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. (laughs) This is somewhat related, but I just... You can think about Obama's presidency as like, oh, the, the, the liberals, they got their guy. You got your black president with his big ears and his transgender bathrooms. Yay, slow clap for you. Now we get our guy. But you also, like, I want to remember that we didn't get a full Obama presidency. Like, we didn't get the Ninth Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. We didn't get mad justices at the federal level appointed. There are many people that never got to actually be a part of what is supposed to be the presidency. Well, there was the ambassador to the Bahamas who died before she could get appointed. Yeah, and but it's or, or yeah. confirmed before she could get confirmed. Look at the judiciary alone, and we got like eighty percent of the presidency, right? So I even, would go with three fifths. <laughs> even that, well played. Um, you know, but that's also that's like you got to work twice as hard to get the same shit, like which is mm-hmm. a consistent narrative that we've lived with. So there's there's not total coherence to everything I said, but I just wanted to add those thoughts about right. trans bubbleishness, and I appreciate everything that Sarah and Latoya uh, added to that. One last question, which is to me, the sort of Chuck Klosterman, a writer I know put out a book this year called, but what if we're wrong? And it's, it's I don't want to read it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, but it's sort of the, it's the defining thing of the bubble, which is what if my bubble is wrong? And when I look at the anger that fueled Trump, the anger that we're seeing across Europe about Muslim integration, those of us in the multiracial, cosmopolitan, uh, multi-sectarian bubble who've embraced that. And I think, you know, I read once that multiculturalism, and it's criticism of multiculturalism, and I think it's probably a fair one. Multiculturalism is an elite philosophy because in order to have the vantage point to see and embrace across all different cultures requires money and education. And if you lack money and education, you are still in your provincial bubble and therefore we're more likely to fear the other. So we in the multiracial, multi-ethnic bubble are saying, why wouldn't you just embrace everyone? Well, there's there's, there's a class component and there's an education component that comes, comes with that. And now everybody has that. And so when I see the anger that's being provoked, that's causing Brexit, that's causing Trump, you have to ask what is globalism messing with tribal forces that it doesn't necessarily understand? You talked uh, last season about Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, yeah. th- that you read and and he's written about. For most of human history, we lived in small, very tightly knit tribal groups, very homogenous, very loyal, very community oriented. And now we're saying, no, global multicultural capitalism, free movement of people, free movement of capital, every, you know, and let's just embrace that and get with it. And because the people who are backlashing against that in this country are white, we are delegitimizing what they're saying because we are at the point in this issue where saying no whiteness was obviously the historical mistake that led to the oppression of black people and corrupted this country, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say they were a small village in India, rural India, that was being destroyed and wiped out by globalization. We would say, look at, you know, the tragedy of this culture that's being lost 
to, you know, the, the, the march of globalization. Whereas because it's rural white people in Indiana who are in many ways overtly racist and have lots of what we consider antediluvian attitudes, we are not necessarily listening to their complaint. But what if we are wrong? What if small homogenous tribalism and fear of the other is the natural state of man? And we are trying to say, no, have a transnational global capitalist society. But that's a fantasy. What if we're wrong? There's something about the way you set this up with, which bothers me. Because I, I don't think we actually live in the world where the rural Indian village that gets wiped out has greater sympathy than the Indiana town that gets wiped out. I, just, I haven't seen that world in reality. I mean, I think I've seen more. I think it has more sympathy in our bubble, is what I'm saying. But it doesn't have more practical action as a result. Uh, no. Otherwise, we would have stopped the global warming thing, which is wiping out poor brown Correct. nations all over the world. And the globalization has come... We would shed a tear for that village on Facebook. We wouldn't do anything. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the cost of the globalized worldview has been... It's, 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 I think it's very complicated. I think it's lifted a lot of people out of poverty in places that this country doesn't know exists. Right. Uh, that people in Indiana don't, never learned about, don't care about, don't have a reason to care about. Right. Um, and now that that chicken is coming home to roost and the defunding of everything and uh, it's, it's really affecting them. So I think on the pessimistic core of your question, though, like, can we all get along? Uh, thank you for reprising <laughs> that with way more education than when Rodney King said it. Um, maybe. Probably, but with great difficulty. I, I think there is, there, there is definitely a part of me, a pessimistic part of me, which wonders, you know, how much are we going to go back and forth in, in this attempt? I think mm -hmm. it's the right way to live. I think interdependence is like proven financially to be better, like diverse corporations make more cash um, and that your worldview is expanded and you have all kinds of cool ideas uh, and more creative possibilities. And that the challenges that the future poses can only be resolved and the opportunities that it affords can only be taken advantage of if you have more multi things mm -hmm. trying to the collaborative models of getting things done and networked is the future. And that's a technical concept, but it's also like an economic one and that we have to be able to work together and not see loss, like see someone else's gain as our loss, that there is a way to paint a picture and to create an economic reality for people where it actually is better. I think part of what's happened is the way the, the globalized future world that we think we might be right about is it's been implemented very poorly. It actually isn't good for everybody. It's good right. for a very few. It's often good for the same people the other systems were good for. Mm -hmm. Right. And we told ourselves it was going to be different this time. It's going to be better this time. It's the propaganda is better. Mm -hmm. But the reality is like wealth is more concentrated than it's been. And so I think there's a, there's a deeper core question of like, what reality are we really arguing for? To what degree are we being hoodwinked? To what degree is the marketing of this more egalitarian multicultural future not honest uh, mm -hmm. about, about what's going on uh, underneath? Sarah? I do think it's going to become easier and easier to kind of create and inhabit this multicultural world. I think we're inexorably headed that way. And even places like rural Indiana or where I'm from are much less culturally and religiously homogenous than they used to be. So change is happening. I don't think conflict's ever going to go away. I think it's going to mutate. We'll, we'll find some, some other like new reasons to hate other people and like mm -hmm. it's going to keep happening. But what is politics if it's not the project of building the world you want to live in? And that's the world that I want to live in. And I think we can't cede that 
point. At the same time, I think it's possible to say, okay, we're not going to cede this point. You know, we want to live in this multicultural society while still acknowledging like, no, this hasn't been good for you. Yes. Like you have been left behind by this you know, what we're calling progress has actually left you behind in an economic fashion. And, and a cultural, fa- I think it's more of a cultural fashion. It's both. I think it's it's just tied up together. But in Appalachia specifically, the economic concerns are very right. valid and very deep. And I think we combat that by actually pushing for sweeping progressive policies that help working class people more generally, not yeah. just like white working class people, but working class people. And I don't know that it's going to make conflict go away, but I think it will help. I want to tap in on just this this economic rising tide, mm-hmm. if I might insert that. So the people making the future, and I'm hoping I'm setting you up, LaToya, because <laughs> it's our tech friends. They have not been on board with like the rising tide method. Mostly these tools have helped exacerbate wealth concentration, mm-hmm. information, segregation, and, and other separatist kind of tendencies. And that's a choice. I think we could create a truly like networked economic and technological world where we distributed wealth more fairly, where we reduced income inequality and still had our dope iPads, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and still had holograms and AI that like enhanced our creativity and didn't just undermine manual labor. But instead, the short-term gain and the greed of those with the power is saying like, ah, I'm going to take the cheat code here and use it to enhance myself. That doesn't have to be the way. And I think there's a there's a parallel universe where we still have the internet, we still have machine learning, we still have automation, and we also have like a basic minimum income <laughs> and we have people who are able to have dignity in their work and a, a feeling of self-worth that can't rely on and react to the pain of economics and lashing out on residual cultural challenges to, to their identity. And I think if you alleviate that big economic pain, you don't erase racism, but you can mitigate its damage to the larger society and its ability to like jerk a country like ours off the edge with like a, a new kleptocrat. So I also like the idea that we should reimagine the future and use politics to try to get there. I don't want to live in pessimism, uh, but I think it we have to make some very dramatically different choices for how we implement this networked future so that we don't further exacerbate the economic pain, which is then an excuse to play off of the culture culture wars. LaToya. (laughs) I've been in racial justice activism for a long time. And one of the things that is always very clear to me is that progress is a pendulum. It's not necessarily a line, right? And so for every, you know, era in which we've had extraordinary progress, extraordinary change, there's been that inherent backlash that comes 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, where people think, you know, they start to forget why we fought for this in the first place, and they start to forget why these things were good. It's been, I think, painful for a young generation that grew up, or, you know, for all of us in general, but particularly for people who grew up without a concept of what it was like before multiculturalism, to see so many people reject it. Um, And I saw the same thing. I was in London right after the Brexit, and it was that same kind of shocked and stunned pain on people's faces as they were trying to make sense of this vote that they felt like had screwed them. But it was this idea of this interplay between like this progress and this regression, this idea that we've maybe we've gone too far, we've done too much. Um, and I always just think that these, these challenges are going to continue, right? As soon as we figure out a new thing, 
people start trying to find different ways to apply it, be it, you know, we can take Einstein's theory and look at science, we can take Einstein's theory and make a bomb. We just got to figure out which one we want to do. And I think that's one of the things that, why there's still such a huge place for activists and artists in the world, because a multicultural world is worth fighting for. And a world that is economically equitable is worth fighting for. And I think a lot of that does come down to you know, to bring it all the way back home, uh, dismantling filter bubbles so that you can actually see the people on the inside. Beautiful. Poetry. That was really great. Thank you, LaToya. Like, I set you up and you didn't disappoint. <laughs> you know, I'm always there for you, Tunde. I'm always there. Wait a you little... said that like you were expecting her to disappoint. No, 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 no. I say it like, <laughs> like you, should, you should believe the hype when it comes to LaToya Peterson. <laughs> It's, it's a it's a verbal LinkedIn endorsement. It's a verbal LinkedIn. Endorsement. I, I, I like your status. <laughs> it's an too. audio. Thanks, thanks it's an audio LinkedIn <laughs> endorsement. I am struck as often I am with these discussions and this topic in particular with how hard all this is. I think your pendulum metaphor, Latoya, is a great one, and I think it's also helpful for people to remember the swinging doesn't just happen on its own. Like you got to do stuff <laughs> to to swing it, and as as uh, frustrating, terrifying, and alienating as the idea of these separate worlds is, we can access each other. It will take a frustrating level of work and patience uh, on all parts. I don't think all bubbles are equally invested in that, but I think we can get closer to it. Uh, I want to thank uh, everybody for coming to the table, coming to the microphones, uh, and joining us for this little bubble of a conversation. I'd like us to wrap up with some recommendations of what people have been reading, watching, listening to uh, that you think our podcasterati should be checking out. Let's start with you, Latoya Peterson. Oh, my God. So I'm just I think I'm in a mood. And so the things that I've been I'm doing a lot of rereading lately. Um, mm. So the first thing I'm rereading is Donna Haraway's A Cyborg Manifesto, and she wrote it back in, uh, I see the publication date in 1984, but some people call it 85. And it's, uh, it was about essentially why we should look at cyborg politics and politics of affinity over identity. And I always found that a really fascinating thing because there's this, this idea that just because we share an identity market means we share a politic or we share a common experience. And if that is proven to be false, as it was in the 80s, um, when the women of color consciousness was being developed to, as a separate thing from like white feminism. Um, and as we see now, where there's this idea of women, but by and large, white women did not go for Hillary, that they didn't vote by identity. They did not feel like they had affinity. Mm. Um, that it's interesting to kind of reread and refresh, and it's probably going to form a thing I will write later and uh, some big kind of somewhat manifesto for the current times that I think I'm working through in my head. So one, Donna Haraway is a cyborg manifesto. It is very academically dense. It is very, very hard reading, but it's also very poetic and beautiful. And it ends with this line that I currently have in my Twitter status, uh, which is, you know, though both are locked in a spiral dance, I would rather be a cyborg than a goddess. And I just think this is so dope. The other recommendation <laughs> is, uh, of course, in my bio, Bartoon Day will have this. In my bio, mm -hmm. it's like, but why choose? I could do it. Anyway. Um, and then the second I big thing that I cyborg. love is um, there is a satirist named Max Berry who writes novels. And so there was this novel he wrote about a capitalist dystopia called Jennifer Government, where the United States and Associated Territories um, had basically gone completely into capitalism. Government was kind of completely defanged. And it's 
sense about what this world and the society looks like. And I find it unfortunately very relevant and <laughs> a little too real right now. But I'm rereading Jennifer Government because the last time I read it was a decade ago. And um, it'll be interesting to see how it's holding up and how it's starting to feel in the future. Yeah. Mr. Colby. Uh, so I have been picking through, I haven't uh, read all of, but some I've read parts of a great book called The End of White Christian America uh, by Robert Jones. And it actually is, is pretty relevant to what we're talking about now. The premise of this entire book can be summed up in, in one joke that I heard on Two Dope Queens. And I'm, I'm, I apologize for not remembering the comedian who said it, but it was a young black woman who was like, I'm so tired of all these white people complaining, all these white men complaining about, you know, the, they're losing everything and black people are taking everything. Like, what are you complaining about? You know, black people in press for hundred years. And I just never understood that complaining. And then I saw the first three seasons of Mad Men and I was like, oh, y'all lost everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so that's basically the premise of the book, which is that, you know, you hear the constant refrain from multiculturalists, from racial This is not a white Christian country. This is a multiracial country. It's like, well... It kind of was a white Judeo-Christian country in terms of like, the power structure, the mm -hmm. identity of it. And that is shifting and being lost. And you you can't understand white people's anger now without acknowledging the ways in which it was a Norman Vincent Peale white Christian America, <laughs> yeah. you know, at the core, at the white hot core of the, the power structure. That's what <laughs> it was. White hot core. The white hot core. So um, it's about that, you know, wh how white Christian America feels about no longer being the center of gravity and what it means for that to go away. Thank you, Ms. Jones. Well, I second the recommendation for uh, the end of white Christian America. I read that earlier this year, and I think it's a really useful primer on understanding kind of the politics of resentment that emerged this year, and mm -hmm. especially from the religious right. I just finished rereading The Californian Ideology, which is an essay rather than a book, kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. Shorter thing. I always recommend books, and I always realize, you know, I was like, yeah, two people are going to read that. <laughs> it came out all the way back in 1995, and it sort of identified what the authors believe was this heterogeneous ideology that was emerging out of Silicon Valley, this weird weird, bizarre marriage of left and right wing mm. political goals. And I think the thesis been, has been largely borne out mm. in the two decades since then. I also have a really bad habit of reading two books at once. And <laughs> I've been too, reading Sarah. through... Because you like to cross-pollinate <laughs> ideas. Because yeah. you're fancy now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Don't tell everyone back home. Um, I've been reading through White Trash. I really yeah. I enjoy that book. It's a good counter to Hillbillyology. Mm. Don't read Hillbillyology. Read White Trash. Okay, um, that's great to know. That yeah. saves me a book. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also reading through Embassies right now, which is about um, it's about one Supreme Court case in particular, but basically the history of forced sterilization and eugenics in yeah. the United States. Uplifting. Yeah, very. But a, a useful reminder. I think I'll use that as a segue. I, my recommendations are on the practical preparation theme of like, get ready. America's about to be super different. America's always done some heinous, has done heinous things in the past. We'll do heinous things in the future. We haven't quite been in this situation. I don't think we have the training, the cultural preparation, the media education for what a full-fledged kleptocratic Trump administration will mean. And so in that spirit, I recommend Masha Gessen, who's written two wonderful essays. Just Google her, G-E-S-S-E-N, Masha Gessen, on uh, rules for living under autocracy and like Trump, what we have to do. And it, it gets at how to decode the, the noise uh, that's coming out and focus on the actions. And it's, I think we're going to have to study some of the nations that we have looked down on and presumed to be above 
as as Americans because our democracy wasn't really designed for somebody who's going to like open a Trump steak taco truck on Pennsylvania Avenue <laughs> while also launching drone strikes. Uh, the second recommendation is a, a real world pop up in New York City. It's called the Glass Room. Uh, but those of you who cannot get to New York City by the end of December 14th, which is when it shuts down, can still go to the website, theglassroomnyc.com. It's put together by Mozilla, the people who make the Firefox browser, and a, a Berlin artist collective called Tactical Tech. The goal of this space is to reveal, educate, and then help you limit the vulnerabilities that the internet has imposed on all of us, from password leaks to hacking to people sniffing your phone and getting into your contacts, spamming you, stealing your identity, uh, surveilling you, whether they be local police, national police forces, international hacker rings. We have created a pretty large surface area of risk for ourselves as we have launched full-fledged into internet life with no safety rails. And it's generally inconvenient when bad things happen. It can also be devastating. I don't think we fully imagine the world uh, where a, a modern futurist uh, despot takes advantage uh, of all the self-reporting databases we've created about everything we love and everyone we're connected to. So mm. I think we need to make some practical preparations. Maybe they'll be overprepared, but better than under for a, a form of disaster that could come and expose us via our, our data and internet vulnerability. Theglassroomnyc.org. Tighten up your stuff, people. This is not a drill. So that's all for today's show. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thank you also to Alana Milner, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire catalog of wonderful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the amazing and delicious and bubblicious things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. We've got a phone number, so give us a call, 612-888-RACE. Again, that's 612-888-RACE. And if you'd like to email us or send a voice memo, that address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace or our names on both platforms. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversation about race. A quick little anecdote on the title of our show. I met a woman, black lady at the yoga studio. She says she and her sister have weekly conversations about our podcast which means there is an unrecorded podcast to be produced out there called Me and My Sister's Conversations about our national conversation about conversations about race. That's a lot of conversating. On behalf of Tanner, Sarah, LaToya, and everybody on the crew here, I'm Baratunde Thurston. You, it was, it was so nice to have another white person. On the show. Did you feel <laughs> comforted? I felt Were you feeling lonely. I felt, safe space. We, Are we you know, not good enough, funny. Tanner? <laughs> no, here, here. I'll, I'll share share an anecdote. So we get a lot of email. Basically, if there's one recurring thread of email in the show, it's that Tanner needs to shut up. And Tanner, anytime Tanner speaks over Anna or a woman of color in the studio, we just get a raft of mansplaining, white splaining. <laughs> he needs to be an ally. Da, 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 da. Even though the whole point of the show is to debate each other, right? So, like two weeks ago, I was at a. Uh, uh, brunch of course with a whole bunch of my white friends and they all listened to the show and they just all of them just together went off on a tear it's like tanner all those people all they do they just, they just gang up on you all the time and it's not fair and <laughs> and i'm like and boy it's like both anna and i are like 
It's a debate yeah. show. We're supposed to debate and, you know. I love anyway. that. That's Those are bubbles represented. Right. 